Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming at kpfk.org in Los Angeles, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge. Today we have Elena Hoosman from Main Street for Everyone. This conversation is in progress due to technical difficulties at the time of recording. Friends of Northampton Trails is doing uh, an art wall. They do this every year during Bike Month as well. It's a public art installation along the trails um, where people can... Um, create art on on the walls, as the the name is. <laughs> um, and then they're they're hosting um, a bike repair clinic. Um, and then something that I'm particularly excited about is a bike breakfast on Wednesday, May 18th. Um, so for those folks who are commuting by bike um, to work, they're able to stop by and, and grab some some food and and coffee on their way in. All right. So you have a lot going on. Main Street for everyone. It's so specific sounding in a way. I mean, although Main Street could be, you know, Main Street USA. So it's in a way it's not at all. But you have an actual Main Street that you're talking about, right? We do. Yeah. Um, I think we are in a transition moment for Main Street for everyone because we were, as you said, you know, very focused on Main Street. Um, so kind of something that's spun off from Main Street is the Safe Streets Northampton. And that's really that network approach that we're, we're thinking about how we can connect major corridors and major um, shopping destinations and schools and the hospital here in Northampton um, with each other, with the trails and with Main Street itself, um, because I think Main Street is only as a bike corridor or is only as effective as being able to get there safely. Um, and so we're really thinking about how can we connect the hospitals, the schools, um, other shopping districts to Main Street, Northampton. And I think another example is right here in Florence. Um, we're technically part of Northampton um, or a village of Northampton, um, but we don't have any. Um, I didn't know that. We don't have any bike lanes in downtown Florence. Um, we have the bike path, which is a couple blocks away, but I oftentimes am biking home from work and I'll swing through um, you know, various destinations in downtown, North, uh, downtown Florence. And it's really a shame that I don't feel safe cycling down Main Street um, in Florence because there is no bike infrastructure. It's a pretty wide road. Um, there's parallel parking, um, and the, nar- the sidewalks are pretty narrow as well. And so there's lots of cars moving in and out of number of driveways and moving in and out of parallel parking spots. And so, um, you know, there's another opportunity to have bike infrastructure in Florence as well. So is there a overall strategy that you think uh, that you've all agreed on, you know, in your, in your consensus-based organization? <laughs> um, so for the Main Street redesign component, we really had um, a number of t- uh working groups. And so we had a business approach, which really went door to door, having those conversations with business owners. We had a communications team, which really pumped out a number of letters to the editor and our local um, newspaper here in Northampton. Um, We had an events team that would plan various events. So we did a number of rides um, through downtown Northampton to really raise awareness that people do bike here and it's not necessarily so car centric as everyone assumes it might be. Um, and so with those working teams, that's more or less how we developed that particular strategy. Um, I would say on the safe street side of things, um, we're still very much in the beginning stages, um, but we're having really, um, uh, really useful and, and, engaging conversations with a lot of um, the decision makers in Northampton. So we've met with, um, you know, a number of city council people. We've really talked to them and had conversations about why it's important to to include bike infrastructure or slowing down traffic in Northampton so that more people feel safe to walk and bike. Um, and it's, you know, has so many co-benefits aside from exercise. You know, it makes sure that our air is cleaner. Um, it reduces traffic congestion. Um, you know, there's a whole climate lens of things as well. And so I think there's um, uh, the city council folks that we've been having these conversations with are really receptive because there are so many co-benefits to investing in bike infrastructure. 
So yeah, what are the you talk about the benefits of investing in bike infrastructure? What what are some of the ones you lead with, or do they already do they already know? Well, I I would say it's a on a case by case basis, simply because they have different priorities. Um, so some of the conversations are you know dollars and cents, and how can we make sure that the budget is balanced? Um, and so we lead with well, bike infrastructure is a lot less expensive than you know building out wider roads or more cars car lanes um and so we're we're able to lead with that dollars and cents framework with some people that we're having conversations with others are really drawn to the climate argument and so um i think tailoring your messaging based on who you're talking to and um what the type of conversations you're having is really important when having these conversations with decision makers at whatever municipality or city you're you're having them in and you're feeling like you're making headway? It's slow um, and it's frustrating. Um, but yeah, I think we are making headway. I think there's also, you know, continuing to have these types of conversations both here um, but also in public meetings. I think um, showing up to those public meetings and being a consistent face and voice for bicycle infrastructure um, time and time again I show up at public meetings, you know, I'm a millennial, I'm a woman, um, which is rare oftentimes in those public meetings, um, to be honest. And um, I think it's really important to hear, to make sure that our voices are heard um, and remind decision makers that um, bicycling is not just a recreational thing that people do on the weekends with their families and a lot of people use it as a viable form of transportation um, to get from point a to point b to shop to get to their doctor's appointments to get to their jobs Um, so all of those things are really important to continue to to message to our decision makers at any opportunity we have whether it's a one-on-one meeting or if it's at a public forum um, all of those venues are really important to have well we're going to Talk about some of those themes in a recorded interview I did that'll that'll be later uh, with someone from LA and someone from San Francisco. But first, we're going to play an interview with our co-host, who you talked to in a earlier episode, Galen Mook, uh, also executive director of California, uh, sorry, <laughs> Massachusetts Bike Coalition, and he talks to Ken McLeod of League of American Cyclists on Massachusetts' new ranking as number one bike-friendly state. Did you know that? I I saw that. I saw that come through my inbox. I was surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Um, I think there's there's still a lot of work to be done if we're comparing ourselves to other cities, um, both in the United States, but then also globally. I think we can look to Europe for a lot of inspiration on how our streets should look. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think Massachusetts is well on its way, but it's a little disheartening that we're the first because it just means so many others are trailing behind. Well, they explain how they arrived at that. It's like a lot of they look at the legislation mm. is, and there's, uh, you know, do, do you have a, a safe passing law? Do you have a complete streets plan? Stuff like that. So they have some formula. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear it? And do you because I'm going to play it. And do you have anything else you want to say before we move on? No, no, nothing else to say. Well, thanks for coming in, Elena. And then you can hang out if you want. Great. Uh, great. Here's the interview. Uh, welcome, Ken McLeod from the League of American Bicyclists. You are uh, calling into Bike Talk to talk about the Bicycle Friendly America program, and specifically the Bike Friendly State program, which we are super excited about because Massachusetts was just named the number one bike friendly state in America. So I want to talk about that ranking. But uh, before we jump in too much, uh, Ken, feel free to introduce yourself and uh, a little bit about the League and your program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Galen. Um, So I'm Ken McLeod. I'm the policy director at the League. The League has been around since 1880 as a membership organization. So we're a national nonprofit membership organization uh, devoted to building a bicycle-friendly America for everyone. Um, And with our our Bicycle-Friendly State program, we're really trying to provide useful feedback and context to every single state um, to promote biking and things that improve the safety and experience of people who are biking in those states. So we, we look at a lot of things to create our ranking um, and we develop report cards for every state. And then we have a national report that kind of summarizes some of the key facts that we discovered in getting data from, I think 46 states participated in the survey. Um, 
and we, we looked at public data for all 50 states to re, create uh, report cards and ranking. That's awesome. So I've been following this for a little while. Um, how long has the Bicycle Friendly America program been rolling? So Bicycle Friendly America, I believe, started in 1995 with the Bicycle Friendly Community Program. We've been doing states since 2008. Um, and it was every year until, I think, 2015. And now it's been about every other year that we've done the ranking. Cool. Um, yeah, and I, looking back in 2019, it looks like Massachusetts was fifth, um, and now we've moved up to number one. So I'm curious about um, what are you looking at in particular when you are making the rankings? What are some of the, um, you know, the, the markers or things that you are really tracking out there? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it has changed over time. Um, back when it started, it was maybe like 80 questions. Then it really expanded to be about 300 questions at one point. And now it's it's back down to 80-ish questions. Um, so there's a lot going on underneath the surface. Um, but we try to prioritize our five bicycle-friendly actions that we want every state to take, um, which is having a complete streets law, having a safe passing law, having a statewide bike plan that's been adopted in the last 10 years, spending 2% or more of federal transportation funds on biking and walking, and having bicycle safety as an emphasis area in the state's strategic highway safety plan, which is a federally re required document um, for safety funding at the federal level. Um, so those are some of our priorities, but there, there is a lot underneath the surface. Um, and I think Massachusetts really stood out for its COVID response and the way that it supported creating uh, more safe places for people to get outside during COVID. Um, there, there was some really innovative stuff being done by the DOT, um, which was rare to see a state DOT take interest and take action in those efforts that many cities did uh, during COVID. Yeah, that's cool. So you're looking at a statewide, Mass Bike Where I Work is, is a statewide organization too. It's actually pretty tough in my perspective to really think about being bike friendly on such a broad level. Because most people, when they think about biking, they think about their bike lane, their neighborhood, what their municipality is putting in, their bike rack. I do have a little bit of a, a trope I like to throw out where it's it's all biking is local, kind of a, yeah. a nod to Tip O'Neill's uh, former Speaker of the House from Massachusetts who said all politics is local. Um, but yet a lot of the policies and framework that creates the local effort really do come from a broader level, hence a state level, or where you, you know, where the league sits on a federal level. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how would an individual rider who heads out of their house on their way to work or, you know, riding their kids to school or something, think about how the state support or even federal support really makes its way to their trip. And we know most bicycle trips are shorter trips. You know, three miles or less is, is a typical bicycle trip, particularly for transportation. So in that three mile ride, um, you're going to cross uh, roadways that are owned by your uh, city or town. Uh, you might cross roadways that are owned by a county, but you also might cross a roadway that's owned by your state. And there's a good chance that that roadway is the largest roadway you'll have to cross and that it's um, a higher speed roadway that you have to cross. And it may not have as good of bike facilities as other um, roadways that are part of your commute or part of your trip. Um, so really, at the national level, um, there's kind of a, a history of prioritizing interstate travel and fast speeds over long distances over slow speeds and safety for all users. So we, we've seen that at the federal level for decades. That has also been what states have done for decades. Um, and so we see often that bicyclist fatalities happen more often on state-owned roadways, and those state-owned roadways are often the, the worst part of people's trips. So it is important that we, we have that shift where safety is the priority rather than speed. And um, the federal and state policies are supporting that connected network for those trips rather than being that barrier that they too often have been. Yeah, it's important to think about all the different um, jurisdictions and players that go into a single trip. Because though that three mile trip may only be you know within a small region, but it does cross so many different decision makers. Um, so I'm curious, can we talk a little bit specific about Massachusetts when you were going through the ranking? Um, and again, whoop, number one, um, what, what are some things that we can, we can call out that we're doing well here, or I should say the DOT and the, and the state 
legislators and you know even some of the statewide advocates um that might be a model for other states to lean into if they want to move their way up the rank yeah i mean i think um several things stand out about massachusetts and that's why it's number one um so one of the things is massachusetts has really put an effort into complete streets over the last uh five or ten years or so i, I don't know the exact timeline um, but they've tied their statewide funding to uh, cities and towns implementing complete streets. They've really pushed complete streets implementation through their policies and their funding approach. And, and that's a really positive thing that we would like to see other states do. Um, when I've looked at Massachusetts funding legislation, um, states approach transportation funding legislation in many different ways. Massachusetts seems to take a project-based approach. So they'll have money specifically allocated to projects. So I, I think there's like a, a Bay Trails program in Massachusetts that has had a lot of funding in recent years. And, and yeah, that's, that's uh, Mass that, Trails, but yes, you're right on point. Okay. Uh, and, and that's something that I could see other states really learning a lot from. Um, and then on our report card, we, we call out the uh, Municipal Modernization Act of 2016, which kind of allowed different speed limit setting in Massachusetts so that some cities could lower their speed limits. Um, and that's something we've seen in, in some states, uh, about 10 states have done that over the last decade uh, nationwide where they've, they've made it easier to sign and design for lower speed roads. Um, and, and I think there's still work to be done there in Massachusetts from what I've heard, but I, I think generally uh, that's headed in the right direction and that's something we would like to see more states do. Yeah, we're not perfect. And um, we actually still have a long way to go on some of this stuff. So I wonder if we could talk about some of the deficiencies that you're seeing in the state. And one sure. thing I'll, I'll call out. So you have this great report card, which from an advocate's perspective is really awesome because it shows what we're good at in your eyes and what we need more work on. One of the things we need more work on is we got a D rating for the traffic laws and policies segment. What are you seeing there? The big thing that sticks out there is the lack of a safe passing law. Um, you know, when we're talking about a safe passing law, we're looking for a law that tells drivers that when they pass a cyclist, they should give three feet or more to that cyclist. Um, a lot of states have moved to even if a lane is available uh, next to the cyclist, you should change lanes just like you would when you're overtaking a car. Um, and so I know Massachusetts has been pursuing that for a while. There have been bills in the legislature that would have done that. Um, but that's that's the big thing that sticks out. It's one of our bicycle-friendly actions. It's something that has been adopted by most states over the last 15 years or so. Um, and, and Massachusetts just hasn't gotten there. Um, so, so that's the big one that sticks out. Yeah, and, and for our listeners um, in Massachusetts, we do have a bill out there. It's called an act to reduce traffic fatalities. It's actually got favorable reporting, both the House and the Senate right now. Um, it would designate vulnerable road users, uh, require three plus foot passing, but it also has other pieces to it, like side guards on trucks, um, standardized crash reporting, um, and a few other components. So it's it's more than just a bicyclist bill. It's kind of for all road safety. You can imagine construction workers out there needing three foot to pass or state troopers writing tickets on the side of the road. So we're trying to make it a little bit more than just the bicyclist's perspective. This is a really interesting tool for advocates, I feel, especially statewide advocates. And I'm wondering um, what you see the message being sent to other states. So if somebody's number five or somebody's number 10, or even all the way, you say there's 46 participants. So, you know, I, I hate to pit us against each other, and this is not a race to the top or a hunger's game situation, but, um, you know, what are you hoping to inspire from other advocates necessarily, not just other DOTs to, to pick up on this? We want it to be useful to all 50 states. Um, the Bicycle Friendly America programs, you know, we have communities, businesses, and universities. All, all of those programs are opt-in. The communities apply, the businesses apply, universities apply. With states, we're gonna rank all states no matter what. We, we ask state DOTs to provide us data so that we can rank them accurately. Um, but if they don't provide us data, we still rank them. Um, Ooh, I didn't so, know that. That, can, that can be quite a burn for some folks who uh, choose not to participate, huh? So yeah, it, you know, we, we got great participation with 46 states participating and that makes our recommendations stronger and allows us to speak to more issues in states. Um, 
and, and we really hope with the grades that like people just use them to kind of judge where they are relative to other states. It's graded on a curve. You know, those A's don't mean you, you got all of the points in any particular category. It just means you got more points than other states. We hope that states that don't have our bicycle-friendly actions see that as a priority and take those actions um, and use the other parts of the report card to figure out where they can take uh, actions now, what might be harder to get to, kind of hopefully think about their strategy for improving over time. Um, and, and personally, when you get to the difference between one and five, um, there, there is discretionary scoring there. There are decisions that we make internally. Like, I, I don't think it's that one is that much better than five. It is just our, our decision was to rank them that way because you have to make decisions about how to, how to rank people when you're doing a ranking. Um, but I think overall, there's been a lot of great work by many states over the last decade. And we've seen that in our bicycle friendly actions going from, I think it was 13 states having four or five in 2015 when we first named them to 24 states having four or five now. So, so we're seeing that change of more states taking action. And I really hope that continues. That's awesome. Yeah, and I appreciate that you're getting buy-in um, from more and more states to participate because that means that they, they're tracking it too. And if, a, if some insiders in the DOT are filling out the form, then they're gonna be concerned about where they sit. And they're also gonna be looking to their peers to see where the good practices are happening. So I'm very grateful that this is kind of a, um, almost like a, a Skillshare uh, type of opportunity for folks in the DOT to kind of look at what their partners are up to. Yeah, and you know, if, if you're in a DOT listening to this and you have questions about your report card or your data compared to other states, uh, please reach out to me. Uh, we can dive into the, the many data points that are kind of the iceberg of this, you know, the, the under the water iceberg of this uh, ranking, because um, there is a lot of data that we collect and look at to determine these rankings that is not on those report cards. Um, so we're, we're happy to have those broader conversations. Yeah, that, that's good. And I wonder if we could just take one more minute. I'm curious of the fact that you said that you started with 80 questions, went to 300 questions, came back down to 80 questions. How, how, how has it evolved and why has it evolved? Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of what you've decided to be looking at as the culture of bike advocacy has has changed. My understanding, and I wasn't at the league when it started, but my understanding is that it started thinking that state DOTs would not cooperate at all. Um, so kind of like what data is out there that we can get our hands on and create something that is data-based that is a, a ranking. So it, it involved looking at things like whether bicycles were vehicles under the traffic law. And I think over time, and as we've gotten more uh, buy-in and engagement from state DOTs, we've hopefully been able to ask better questions. And maybe we got a little bit carried away um, asking 300 questions, because I, I know bicyclists all have their kind of pet issues and things that they care deeply about. And I think that's where we, we went with the ranking for a bit. And I, I think now, uh, over the last couple rounds, um, we're, we're hopefully um, trying to focus more on the actual things that state DOTs, legislatures, and governors can do to improve the safety and experience of people biking, and hopefully providing better comparative data for those states that want to improve and understand what other states are doing. We're probably going to continue to change our, our survey over time to kind of reflect the priorities of bicycle advocacy as, as we see them and understand them. Um, but our, our goal is really to provide that comparative data for states to better understand themselves relative to others and kind of improve all states together over time. Well, we do look forward to the um, the evolution of the program and the progress of our fellow uh, state advocates and DOTs out there. Anything else you want to mention about the league before we um, head out? We are a national advocacy group. We are very uh, focused on what is happening at the federal level because it does impact what states do and what impacts what localities do. Um, you know, we're, we're looking forward to bike month uh, in May. We just had a webinar with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration yesterday to talk about how uh, bike month and uh, NHTSA can support bicycle safety education. One of the things that we are looking forward to at the federal level is USDOT put out this really great document called the National Roadway Safety Strategy earlier this year um, that committed it to uh, zero traffic deaths moving forward. 
So we're, we're excited to see how that statement and commitment turns into policy over the next year or two as the bipartisan infrastructure law is implemented. Um, and one of the first things we're gonna see coming out of that is an update to this program called the New Car Assessment Program, um, which has a comment period that closes on May 9th. Um, and that's an opportunity to get, for the first time ever, uh, testing for the safety of people biking and walking in how vehicles are assessed for safety. So we're, we're hopeful that bicyclists will be included in that in the comment uh, that was put out by USDOT for that program, it only included pedestrians. So we're, we're working on our comment to make the case for including bicyclists. And, and we're hopeful that when we see the final action later this year, it'll include bicyclists. That's awesome. There's so much work that the league is, is doing out there. So, um, you know, from the state level and the individual riders level, I'm super grateful to have you uh, and your team keeping track of, of all of these big picture, large ship steering type of advocacy movements. So we are we are grateful for the work. And so whatever we can do to help you and connect with you to make sure we keep on moving forward. And we appreciate the work done by uh, you know, state advocates like you at MassBike and, and all the local advocates as well. Um, you know, it is a movement that we are, are trying to build and, and lead. Uh, so it's great when we can work together and improve bicycling. Awesome. Well, thanks. Ken McLeod, the policy director from the League of American Bicyclists, um, calling into Bike Talk to talk about the uh, Bicycle Friendly America program and the fact that Massachusetts is now ranked number one bike friendly state in the union um, for now. And yeah, thanks, Ken, for both the accolades and the work and the support. And um, it's good to be assessed on how we are out there. Yeah, thanks for having me and keep up the good work. Um, you know, hopefully that, that safe passing law gets adopted and we continue to see Massachusetts really pushing as a leader in this space. We got some work to do, but um, we're, we're definitely doing the work. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks. We got some work to do. That can't be stressed enough. This is Bike Talk and you are um, just, you have just heard our co-host, Gavin Mook, who's the executive director of the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition. And he was talking to Ken McLeod of the League of American Bicyclists about Massachusetts's number one bike-friendly ranking among the states. So now we're going to go, having covered Massachusetts, we're going to go to um, a, an interview with a couple of people from California that I found online. And... They had some tweets about the reasons uh, that people have for not biking. And so here's that interview. Today, I'm talking to Lava Sunder and Dan Fetterman, who both tweeted about the reasons people come up with about why people can't ride bikes, seemingly whenever anyone posts something online about how you can replace car trips with bikes. Hi, Lava. Hi, Dan. Hey. Hello. Lava, you're living in Los Angeles without a car. Yes, that is correct. I've seen your tweets about that. And uh, Dan, you are where? In are San Francisco, also no car. Very nice. And so let's start with Lava. The tweet I wanted to just start with was about penguins. Would you like to read that? Do you have that? <laughs> yeah, I can pull. Yeah, I just pulled it up. So I said, um, this was maybe a hyperbole, but not that much uh, a reaction of, of that people have when I tell them I'm car free. Uh, so they say something along the lines of, well, what if you have to run an errand at 3 a.m. and the errand is checking the penguin cameras and it's snowing because you're a researcher living in Antarctica? You know, it's like some uh, insane scenario that you would hypothetically need a car for. But I will say the coolest part about that tweet is someone responded, and it turns out that actual penguin camera researchers don't use cars in Antarctica. They they only go by foot. So, you know, it turns out you wouldn't need a car for that scenario. That is amazing that you just hit on that and somebody responded. What did they say? They know somebody or it wasn't the actual penguin researcher who? No, they know someone. But then someone else, I think, who was a penguin researcher confirmed that they, they just use, they don't want to disturb the the penguins with the cars or vehicles, I should say. That is so great. Maybe you, you somehow, you psychically knew that. I know. I promise I didn't plan that. You're, you were trying to come out with an outrageous example, which yeah. is what it seems like people are always doing for some reason, uh, whenever anybody talks about doing a bike trip. 
Yeah, I mean, specifically in LA, because there isn't um, a lot of public transport. When I tell people I'm car free, uh, they immediately jump to these kind of edge case scenarios where you would want or need a car. Um, And I think make, you know, sort of make decisions almost based on the edge case versus maybe most of your trips, you might not need a car. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's kind of the experience I have most frequently. What's a real example of somebody giving an an objection? Yeah. The most frequent one in LA is what if you have to drive down Santa Barbara or, you know, something like that, something where you'd want to take advantage of the wild, the sort of area around the city, or, you know, I get some people saying, well, what if you want to drive up to Malibu and, and, and spend the day there? Um, so that's a frequent one. I would say I would categorize those questions by like distance. Um, So people saying essentially, what if you want to go more than 20 miles somewhere? And then the other example frequently is, you know, what if you have to haul, you know, what if you're buying groceries for a big party or what if you need to go pick up a couch? And so this is sort of like the load question. Um, Mm -hmm. And ultimately both, um, for me are, are very edge case scenarios. And then what I also tell people, um, when I say car free, I don't own a private vehicle. Uh, but I, I certainly use rideshare and car share when needed. And mm-hmm. so I think that's maybe a piece that's missing, but, but, uh, the sort of like edge case question across distance and sort of cargo capacity are really, are really common questions, I guess. And then Dan had a tweet about that raised the equity objection. Dan, you want to read your tweet? Absolutely. Uh, So what I tweeted was that I've never understood the not everyone can ride a bike equity argument, that driving a car requires passing a literal state-administered test that people fail all the time. Um, Yeah, it's just there's always this discussion, especially in San Francisco these days, around uh, we've got car-free JFK, which is like a what, one point eight mile section of road within a park with significantly more road than that. Um, And, you know, it's always about the the discussion ends up being centered around equity and making sure that everyone in the city can get to the park, which is great. We should ensure that everybody in the city can get to the park, but cars are not the only way to get around in a city, especially a city like San Francisco, where we actually have really good public transportation. One of, one of the, uh, the better, better benefits of car free JFK is the bus that goes along part of the route now is like two minutes faster, right? Like it's, it gets through a little section of the, the, uh, the route that now no longer has cars in it and it's way faster, right? So everybody who's riding the bus now can get to the park faster. It's amazing. Um, so yeah, it just, it drives me a little bit batty. The, the idea, the conceit in the argument around equity that cars are the only way that everyone gets around when, you know, owning and maintaining a car costs five, ten thousand dollars a year. Like that's a lot of money. Right. I mean, if you're talking about equity, and then you're talking about setting up all transportation just for people who are able to afford the the ten thousand dollar a year mode, there's a that's that seems there's like a disconnect. Missing. Yeah, a exactly. Disconnect. Yeah. When you look at census data, or you look, you look at data around car ownership, but like the less well-off are must, much less likely to own a car, which makes sense because cars are extremely expensive, right? So when we're really talking about equity, we should be talking about how do we increase bikeability? How do we increase transit speeds, right? Like there, there are all kinds of things we can do to increase access for everyone, uh, not just people who have you know, the money to buy a car, the room to store a car. Like we just, we, we got to think bigger. Well, you also have to ask, is it a good faith argument, the equity argument? Are people really caring about equity? I Yes. And at large, uh, it seems to be a, a way to get access to my parking as opposed to the parking for somebody I'm trying to theoretically defend here, right? I, I'd say there are some people out there who do view it through that lens and that that is a good faith view, but like it's it's the small minority of people making that argument online, at least. I, I often see the one about, you know, well, what if you're in construction and and you need to carry lumber, then you need a car. I often see that one. 
Yep. What else do I see? Which isn't even necessarily true. I mean, like, I've, I've got a big front bucket bike that can absolutely carry all kinds of stuff. Now, can it carry uh, hundreds of pounds? Yes, but, like, we're, we're going to max out at around two, 250. Um, but, you know, there's always, you can always rent. We have this way that we defer to to get around that because we've deferred to it so much, we view it as the only option. And it's just, we, we need to think bigger about how, how we get people to travel differently because we have goals. I mean, in, in San Francisco, we have, um, or we had a goal of 80% mode share that wasn't driving by 2030. I think we just pushed that back to 2035. I need to go double check that. Um, but like, how do you hit that when we've spent two years talking about 1.8 miles in a park? <laughs> right you have to fight for any kind of bike lanes or road calming you know reductions of speed block by block lava have you have you been involved in any advocacy like any of these community meetings where they're really trying to stop road improvement yeah what part of a- I, I have yeah i essentially live in hollywood and the an organization that i volunteer with that i think is really incredible is called Streets for All in LA and kind of similar to Dan's point like LA has really bold aspirations i think they have some 20 you know a sort of 2035 mobility plan i think it's called and um it was it was passed in 2015 it was intended to completely transform the bikeability and walkability of the city and i think in about 8 years 7 or 8 years only 3% of the plan has been implemented and it's really uh, distressing. And, you know, I, I, so I think that's like a huge, it's a huge bit of um, work that needs to happen. But unfortunately, there's not um, a lot of accountability. Um, so the, the specific piece of work that Streets for All is working on is a piece of um, legislation called Healthy Streets. And effectively, it would legally mandate the city of L.A. to um, implement the mobility plan whenever they repaved roads. So as opposed to kind of opting into a plan that they passed, they would have to like really, you know, do it unless for whatever reason, it didn't make sense at this point. Um, So, you know, I think that's a great initiative. I think something I was thinking of when, when Dan was speaking in terms of these like objections, you know, the, the kind of construction objections, so many people say that and like, you know, we're our remote workers and, you know, haven't been to home Depot in years or something. I think it's a, it's a funny objection. The one I think, that I hear most often that at least in my view is most um, valid, I guess, is people saying, well, I just like, don't feel safe biking, you know, like in LA particularly, like I I can't bike because what if I need to take my kids and I'd have to go on this main road and I just don't feel safe or or that. I mean, I think that's a very real concern. Um, And San Francisco and LA couldn't be, you know, moving faster to try to make it safer. But I, I definitely hear that objection quite a bit. Yeah, I do as well. It's an interesting objection when you're, the reason that you're talking about it is because you want it to be safer. People will actually raise the objection that you can't bike because of cars when you're trying to make the point that we need to take space and get yeah. to cars. Yep. And there's a good point made in, I think it was Atlantic about, you know, I'm sure all, all three of us have, have read about how public input can be quite detrimental to projects. And there's a good point made about how the the sort of beneficiaries of, a, of something like a safe bike lane, like they're fairly spread out. Um, the people that are negatively impacted can tend to be like the houses right there or something like that. So that I think that imbalance makes it hard to like rally the troops, so to speak, in terms of support, but makes it very easy to rally the troops in terms of opposition. And so then you, yeah, you get into these the scenarios when it just feels very hard to make change. Absolutely. I didn't know there were negative effects on people who live near bike lanes. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I had a buddy uh, who lived, we have a, a bike lane on 17th Street in San Francisco, who he had bought a car and then six months later, um, they were putting in the bike lane and he was really upset because he had on-street parking before and now he doesn't have on-street parking and you know he hadn't looked at what the street was going to do because we definitely had the plans up right um and so like I, I understand the frustration and I understand his frustration it's just we when we're talking about the ability for 
20 homes to be able to park on the store their private vehicle on the street for free or for $116 a year, right? Compared to the ability of people to get across the city safely, like we need to be weighing these things in an equitable fashion, right? And we're not very good at doing that and public comment certainly does not help us move towards that world. If public comment and public input is a problem, I mean, what are you going to do about that problem? It's not public input. It is specifically comment that requires people to mobilize for, for every project, right? Like we, we have a massive status quo bias in, in our local city councils, right? Um, what I would love to see is I would love to see, I mean, we have bold goals, right? We were just talking about how both San Francisco and LA have these, these grandiose goals, but there's no accountability towards getting there. And because we are putting each segment of the project up for public comment and up for public review, and it, it, we just, we're stuck in a status quo in a world where we actually have something of an emergency in terms of how quickly we move here. I mean, the, the, the reason we have these mode shift goals aren't because it's not out of the goodness of our hearts to make it easier to bike. It's because we have emissions goals. Like we, we have real problems we have to solve in a period of time so that we can continue living on this planet. Um, right. I would love to see our, our local governments who have committed to these bold goals actually hold themselves accountable to do it. Um, I don't, I don't know how we make that change though. And so here I am continuing to write emails to my city council, you know, all the time. It's, it really, the issue really isn't public comment. Like we talked this LA mobility plan. I was talking about 3% of it has been implemented. That plan was created with a bunch of public input, public comment. It's been created and the city has sort of, you know, said they want to implement it. Like we don't need to continue go, going back and getting like consistent, uh, you know, feedback at every step of the way, if we've already had a lot of, of input. And I think the second thing I wanted to mention is like public comments, a bit of a misnomer, like we all know this, but the, the public that shows up to these meetings is not indicative of really the public that's going to be experiencing these bike lanes. It's, it's often much wealthier, um, it often doesn't have a lot of racial minorities. And so it just, you know, it's, it feels difficult to say, oh, we shouldn't have public comment because I frankly don't even think what we're getting is public comment. We're getting a very small group of people commenting that is sort of preventing larger change. Exactly. And, and again, if we reach back to who, what is the demographics that own cars versus doesn't, it, you've got your, your wealthier community members who own cars and your wealthier community members probably are more likely to have the flexibility to show up at city hall at two o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Like it's, we're, we're getting public comment from a subsection of the community that is going to be more against the changes that we need to make. And then there's one category which hasn't been brought up yet. It's people who are not in cities, in rural areas. You know, our show is also on uh, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, which is, it's not a city like San Francisco or Los Angeles. From my point of view, it's not just city or not city. It's, it's what is your average trip length, right? Like I, I have a, a coworker who lives in the East Bay, um, a little bit further remote, and was talking about how, you know, he, he drives his kids to school and there's no way he could bike it. Like, it's just, it's way too big a, a, a length of trip. And so I asked him, how far away do you live from your kid's school? And his answer was four miles. Like, well, yeah. that's, that's a 20 minute bike ride. Like, you can do that. Yeah. That's actually pretty, pretty reasonable, right? And it's just, you know, it came down to, we looked at street view and the roads you would have to take and it absolutely wasn't safe. And he's right, that that isn't a good, uh, good way for him to get his kids around, but it doesn't have to be that way right? If your average trip is under five miles, like it turns out you actually live in a very bikeable area if we were to give you the resources to feel safe doing that. Yeah, because people live near generally where their kids go to school. A lot of the sort of minor problems that people maybe have with biking or comments I get, at least for me, getting an electric bike has really helped solve. You know, friends that I know, particularly women, maybe don't want to it might be more difficult to bike and work a tire five miles to get to work. Like that's not trivially easy. Women have higher and, and frankly unfair standards for what they have to wear to, to get to work often. And like 
for me, getting an electric bike has really transformed how I get around. It's like much easier. I can carry loads that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise, like weeks and weeks of groceries that I'm just, you know, not strong enough to do otherwise. And I think even on the rural point, like I used to be a little bit more kind of, oh, everyone can live without a car, but I, I'm more realistic now. I mean, I think in, in a lot of places, if you're living 20 miles away from resources you need to get to, you might need to have a vehicle. But I know a lot of families that have given up a vehicle in exchange for an electric bike. So as opposed to being a two car or three car family, you know, they're a one car family with a, a couple of electric bikes. And it's like just really meaningfully transforms the amount of time it takes to bike five miles. And also for me, meaningfully sort of increases the amount of load and, and decreases like the stress on my body. So I just am really like bullish on that technology specifically enabling a lot of people to overcome objections to biking that are very realistic, um, you know, like sort of uh, ability to carry loads and, and bike longer distances and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, E-bikes e truly help replace cars in, in a way that's that's amazing um i had a road bike and now i have e-bikes and the e-bikes mean that i just don't have to think about how i'm getting there i just know that the bike is going to be fine and it's it's going to be okay the only time it's a little bit more interesting is when it's raining outside and i have head-to-toe gore-tex that goes over my clothes and it keeps me dry like it, between an e-bike and some good rain gear it just makes life easy. It, it makes it fun. I actually enjoy getting across the city, right? Like when I used to take Uber or Lyft, it's, you have to wait for the driver. You have to wait through traffic. You're stressed. Are you going to get there on time? It always takes me the same amount of time to go from point A to point B, right? Like I know how much time that's going to take and that, and I know the parking is going to be easier, right? It simplifies. Biking truly simplifies. Um, and sure, sometimes I need to go rent a car, but like that's, we don't need to design every road we have around that being the primary mode. I guess some people don't believe in climate change, but I mean, the, even the people who acknowledge it, let's say it was an inconvenience or you have to lose a, a car space. Where is your sacrifice? We can't save the climate without making changes and change is going to inconvenience or to at least temporarily inconvenience someone, right? And so, yeah, no, there's, there's a big question of who, who and how, and, and do we end up in a better place? Even if we're talking about moving to electric vehicles, which is not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination, like the amount of money that we're spending on that at a federal level, like that money could have been spent elsewhere. We are creating trade-offs, even if it doesn't feel that way. We do need to make change. And it, land use is the biggest possible lever we have for reducing emissions. But we, we have to be willing to think about the people who will move here and think about the people who will be able to get around, um, who, you know, have more, more trouble now, or maybe they don't have trouble, but it, let's put it this way. Um, one of the biggest things you can do from a climate change point of view at a local level is add more housing, right? People moving or people having to move to travel less to get to their destinations is huge from an emissions point of view and you can't keep adding people if driving is your only way to get around because now all of a sudden you have traffic and so in order for us to actually overcome climate change to reduce our per person emissions we need people living closer together and we need ways for them to get around that isn't getting stuck in traffic and driving everywhere so like we need to make changes it's coming no matter what we do so let's let's get ahead of it please right yes and lava is there a last minute pitch you want to make to the population of, of the planet <laughs> whenever people ask me why i bike i never you know lead with sustainability because frankly that isn't the first reason for me the first reason for me is because it is more convenient and better and cheaper. It's just like overall a better option for me. And I think it's really important as we talk about what it looks like to sort of mode shift and change how we get around that we frame it as such, as an option that's actually just is, is better. So, you know, Dan mentioned he's happier when getting around. I feel it the exact same way. For me in LA, I get around just as quickly as if I had a car. It's unquestionably cheaper. I never have to stress out about parking. Um, and, and, you know, I don't have to worry about maintenance and all of that. So my first answer whenever people ask, you know, oh, why do you bike? Should I get a bike? Is it's just better. 
And I think that we need to do more work to make it better for more people, if that makes sense. So, you know, uh, bike lanes, like Dan said, more, um, better land use, more retail. Um, and like, ultimately then I think we'll see a shift that will have huge and meaningful sort of sustainability changes. The most sustainable neighborhoods in the U.S., people don't live there because they're sustainable. They live there because they're cool and walkable and dense and vibrant. And like, I think we just, if we sort of shift, um, you know, transportation that direction as well, I'd hope everyone is just biking because it's the best decision. And then by the way, hopefully we save the planet. That's that's what you need, Ms. Bonnie. Well, thanks for coming on. If you want to come on again with anything, you have a different tweet you want to talk about, then um, please jump on. You know, we're doing it every Sunday. Thank you. That was our Twitter interview with Lava Sunder from Los Angeles. She's car-free in Los Angeles. And Dan Fetterman in San Francisco, also car-free, both bike. And we use a lot of Twitter interviews on Bike Talk. It's interesting to see what resonates with people, which you can tell because there are a lot of likes and retweets. When a tweet about safe streets or how people use their bikes gets a lot of traction, It says something. If you have a tweet you want to share with us, we are on Twitter at BikeTalkPFK. And our website is BikeTalk.org. Our email is LiveBikeTalk at gmail.com. Send us your bike news, culture, and suggestions for upcoming guests. And thank you for listening. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run all around, run all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run all around, run all around. Get that car out of my way, I wanna ride my bike today. Keep me fit, get me there, I won't go sinking up the alley behind the daily grind. Let your mind unwind. Oh, catch yourself a bite. Oh, catch yourself a bite. Oh, catch yourself a bite.